This is a continuation of the Yankton 4 slash Rouse case. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes on this series, we encourage you to go back and listen to those first for context. In today's episode, we will be talking to attorney Mike Ware. Mike is a professor at the Texas A&M School of Law and is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. He is also on the board of directors of the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. Mike took on Desmond's case on behalf of the Innocence Project of Texas, and here is his story about it. Mike, can you tell us um, how Desmond's case came to you? Um, I was contacted by Desmond's wife, Anna, um, when the uh, San Antonio 4 exoneration came out and got national and international publicity. And I think she recognized that his case or their case uh, was in many ways um, similar that case. And so um, she is the one who actually directly contacted me. And I was, you know, really I, I represent uh, and started out representing and really still represent all, all four of those men. Um, and fortunately, um, you know, at, at some point down the road, I was able to enlist the, the help of uh, the Minnesota Innocence Project. Um, I think now the Great Northwestern or Great Northern Innocence Project. And, uh, and then some of uh, the local council up there in South Dakota. But, um, but that's how it came to me. Oh, that's really interesting. Was that back in 2015? You know, uh, <clears throat> it may have been that early. I, I, I'm thinking it was more like 2016 okay. or, or even 17. And it, was that on your own or was that through the Innocence Project? No, I was through the, I mean, she contacted me because I represented the San Antonio Four, but I, I considered it an Innocence, Pro, an Innocence Project of Texas case. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, since it happened in South Dakota, um, my understanding is they did not have an innocence project back then. Is that why you took it? Well, I took it because nobody else would. Okay. Uh, obviously, there was an injustice there, and uh, um, and and there's still no innocence project in South Dakota, as far as I know. But the uh, Great Northern, you know, formerly the Minnesota Innocence Project, I think considered South Dakota part of their. Um, jurisdiction, if you will. Okay. Okay. And so um, what, what is happening with the case now? Is it, I mean, I know that you um, lost an appeal. Is that the end of it for them or do they have options? Uh, you know, I, I th Desmond's case is done in the courts, I'll just address his and the others are in similar positions. The, you know, the, the law is so convoluted and stupid um, as far as, um, you know, going into federal court and trying to seek truth and justice uh, that each one of them is in a little bit different procedural posture uh, for reasons I really don't need to go into, um, it, it, you know, they, at some point, <clears throat> you know, after all of their appeals, um, 
initially failed, they uh, had gone back to on their own pro se, so to speak, and it it the the result was a kind of a procedural mess. But yeah, I mean, in in as a practical matter, uh, Desmond's um, court case is is finished and unfortunately unsuccessfully. So, uh, what was it about his case that that you took it? Is it because of the similarity uh, to the other one, the San Antonio uh, court? You know, I mean, it. it Number one, you know, the, the the first criterion before we really litigate a case is we had to be convinced that this these that he was absolutely innocent. And and the evidence was overwhelming that he was absolutely innocent. And so um and and that along with the fact that nobody else would take the case, and that along with, you know, there were timelines running. Um there was a statute of limitations that we had to be cognizant of. Um, there was a new case, a Supreme Court case that came down, uh, Pena Rodriguez, that <clears throat> came down in 2007, March of 2017, that in our mind began a new, a, a one-year statute of limitations if we were going to raise a Pena Rodriguez claim. And this case had an excellent Pena Rodriguez claim. Um, we had to file it within the year. So, you know, it's not something we could just sit on. Um, I don't understand why there is a statute of limitations. If you can prove someone's innocence, you should always be able to prove it. I don't don't understand time barred evidence and all that stuff. I I mean, to me, I I could get into um, what the law is on that federal court. Um, You know, the, the problem is, um, in, in, and maybe this is kind of off topic, but the problem is the federal judiciary is run largely by old white men for the benefit of old white men. Mm-hmm. So, so even though uh, we had, I believe, the law on our side, there is, there is an exception in the law that if you can show by a preponderance of the evidence your client is actually innocent, then then you can at least get back into court. You don't get relief, but you can at least get back into court and assert your constitutional claims. Um, we had overwhelming evidence that um, that they were actually innocent. I mean, every one of the, and I can provide these affidavits to you if you are interested. Every one of the alleged victims had provided, you know, very convincing affidavits uh, saying that this never happened. Um, We had, you know, world-leading experts about the physical, uh, supposed physical evidence that that physical evidence testimony was BS. And whoever testified to that is a quack, you know. Um, We tried to talk to the quack doctor. He wouldn't talk to us. At one point, the judge even ordered him to give an affidavit. We tried to take his deposition, and he just refused to give an affidavit. You know, I mean, he's an old white man. The judge is an old white man. And, of course, the judge said, okay, well, I'm not going to this old white man. I ordered him to give an affidavit, but if he's not going to give one, okay. Um, and uh, um, 
I, I'm I'm sorry. That's just you know kind of my my take. Mm-hmm. So did, did you have some questions? Okay. Yes. Um, so is it true that Judge Lawrence Pearsall, the original judge, came out of retirement um, just to hear the appeal on this case? And is if so, is that standard practice? Um, I, I believe, you know, he's the one who heard the case originally in 94. Um, he's the one that heard the motion for new trial in um I forget that. I think that was actually heard in 2001 or so. And, and by the time, you know, we came, I believe he had taken senior status, um, which is different than retirement. Okay. Judges on senior status still take cases. And so I, I, I don't think he came out of retirement just to hear this, but okay. he, I, I believe at the time uh, that we went into court in 2018, he was on senior status. But this was not the only case he, he had, I'm sure. Okay. And I, I, w- I did kind of go over the appeal. I did read over that. Um, it did say in there somewhere that his job during the appeal process, primarily, if I understood that correctly, was to determine if the evidence would would be, how am I going to say, if it was presented to a new jury, would would they acquit these, these gentlemen? And he did not believe that the evidence would convince a new jury of their innocence um well um, yeah i don't you know, know. unfortunately uh, uh, that, that i wish that had been the standard because there's no way we would have lost that okay um you know uh, i mean he may have gratuitously thrown that in i don't know i, okay. I it's hard to remember exactly there was so many we, we we first went into the eighth circuit court of appeals and um they you know, had 60 days under the statute to make a decision as to whether or not to let us go back into court. We clearly won. They waited past the 60 days. So they, you know, thumbed their nose at the law in that respect. But then they denied us the ability to even go back into court and assert our claims, um, notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence on our, in our favor. And of course, under the law, their decision is unappealable. So we get creative and tr- and go back into the district court and, um, you know, make our procedural arguments there as to why we should at least get a hearing on the merits. And we were never able to get a hearing on the merits. We did. We He, he did give us oral argument. And uh, yeah, I think it was Halloween of 2018, October 31st, 2018, right around. And uh, we uh, we didn't have much warning, but we jumped on airplanes and went up there. The the um, alleged original victims were there to support um, the defendants, Desmond and the other defendants. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, these white men, and I think it's misogynist, uh, really, as well as racist. Mm-hmm. That say, we don't care. We don't care what these women have to say, you know. And we didn't care what they had to say, you know, back in the late 90s when when the motion for a new trial was filed. Now, now that they're adult women with careers of their own, etc., we don't care what they had to say now. It doesn't even though they're if anybody knows what happened, it's them. We don't care. You know, we as old white men, we decide what happened, not the people who were there, not these uh, not these 
Native American women darn sure don't tell us what happened. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jude, here we go. <laughs> I'm trying to keep my, I've been trying to keep my emotions out of it, but I can't. Oh, I'm just so mad. Yeah. I was wondering, Mike, if you had the take on why they couldn't get anyone to take their case because it's, it's good. Like they have a uh, convincing argument. Um, well, I mean, I mean, there are any number of reasons. It, it, it's, yeah, I mean, if if truth, justice, and the rule of law mattered, <laughs> they had a good case. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, I'm sure there were, and, and number two, it, it's, it's kind of a highly specialized area of the law. Most lawyers have no clue how to approach these kinds of cases, you know, in federal court. Um, at this stage of the proceedings. And, and of course, you know, they have no money. So right. um, that weeds out a lot of lawyers to begin with. Right. Ty, do you have anything? I'm curious as to, um, sorry, I was just going to say, I'm curious as to uh, where this could go. Because Desmond has been speaking about like wanting to have justice further. And I know that we've, you guys have had that case, but do you think that there would be a way that, that they would be able to pick up another case and prove that innocence for him? Or is that kind of, that's it for, for the case? You know, um, it, something um, extraordinary would have to happen. Um, you know, uh, the Supreme Court would have to come out with some extraordinary decision that was made retroactive uh, that that was the problem with the Pena Rodriguez claim that we had that came out of the Supreme Court in 2017. We clearly get relief under Pena Rodriguez, but the Supreme, but the the, the government was able to argue, and I, and I, they're probably right that that Pena Rodriguez was not to be applied retroactively. So um, so it didn't apply to us, even though I believe we clearly get relief under that case. Um, and that's a case that says there's generally a rule that um, after a trial, you can't invade the thought processes of the jurors. You know, you can't you can't put the jurors on the stand and say, well, isn't it true that, you know, so and so the foreman said we have to we have to convict this person because they're black. You know, uh, you're not allowed to do that. Um the, the the jurors thought processes are sacrosanct. The Pena Rodriguez case said if there's blatant racism in the jury room uh, that that influenced the verdict, then you then that is a very limited exception to the rule. And we had overwhelming evidence that the jurors were making fun of the, the defendants for being Native Americans, that they were doing doing war hoops in the jury room and dancing around. Uh, like TV, like TV Indians and, uh, and, and saying racist things. We have really over, we have very strong evidence of that. And, um, but because the, there's a determination that this Pena Rodriguez rule is not retroactive, um, we were not able to really explore it like we should. And we have, a, we have an affidavit that I can provide you with uh, a person who, uh, um, 
actually um, is, is not new to the scene, but who was worked with one of the jurors. And this juror had disclosed all this to her about what was going on in the jury room. Mm -hmm. To me, that's yes. like, it's, if it is questionable jury misconduct, any of those things that you've talked about should be enough yes. to get a new trial or have the Supreme Court get involved and hear it. Why, why does it keep going back to South Dakota um, where if there is racism, I'm just saying if there is, um, that it's going to continue to get the same outcome? You can't keep doing the same thing, hearing it the same information by these guys and ex expecting a different result if they're yeah, still racist or whatever. Well, I mean, that's just the law. I mean, it goes back to the court of conviction and, and that's the, pretty much the law everywhere. I mean, that's why did the San Antonio four case go back to their same court, mm -hmm. just their same judge, you know, I mean, it's just um, the way it is. Um, you know, I think one, and, and maybe this is, uh, getting too far into the weeds, but I think this is an important point. It's kind of related to what you're saying is that, you know, there was evidence at, or testimony at trial from this quack doctor and he had examined these little girls and had seen physical evidence that they had been abused. We now know that was total BS. We now, you know, it, it was very similar to the San Antonio four case. Dr. Nancy Kellogg testified to that in their trial. And and we were at, and even she admitted at the writ hearing that that what she testified to was total BS. This was very similar. Um, and we had some of the world's foremost experts give affidavits to that effect. Now, the reason that's important, aside from, you know, being self-evidently important, is when they came back into court the first time on the motion for new trial, and I think about 2001, um, the, at that point, they, you know, those lawyers had not presented the evidence that this physical, you know, evidence, supposed physical evidence was BS. They didn't present that. And the judge, Judge Beersall, said, well, one of the reasons I don't believe these women as to what happened to them. One of the reasons I think I know better what happened to them than they know what happened to them is because of this physical evidence that, that, that proves that they were, they were sexually abused. And so then, and he put that in a published opinion. And then the Eighth Circuit, you know, I think it was the same three old white men who, who um, were involved the on the first appeal they, they also put that in a published opinion. Well, we don't believe these, these women about what happened because look at this physical evidence that our old white doctor found, you know? And so we came back, you know, when we came back and said, look, it, it is unrebutted that that was BS, that that physical evidence that this guy testified to was BS. And we've got, the world's foremost experts given affidavits that it's BS. So what you relied on and put in a published opinion as to why you don't believe the recantations is now gone, right. you know? Right. And, and, uh, you know, they, they never, um, they avoided that issue. I'm really I'm glad that you brought that up because during the, I think the very first trial, 
Well, I'm not sure if it was the first trial or not. The second doctor that examined the little girls the second time, he had said that I just want you to know that I'm not an expert in this um, area and I would recommend a, a professional physician that is experienced in child sex crimes to examine the girls and the judge refused. Yeah, I, I, I think that was Dr. Kaplan. Yes, I think um, so. Of course, he, he was deceased by the time we got the case and went back into court. That makes me so was, angry. Like, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want an expert to come in and make sure that this is a sexual abuse case? Because because you want as as a federal judge, they want to control the truth. Wow. That's insane. Control the truth. And also, it just seems evident here and in other cases that, you know, if you don't have money and you file your own appeals, then you use up your appeals. You can't raise, raise the same issues again. That's if exactly you, right. And if you hire the wrong lawyer, they uh, address the wrong issues and they're yeah. time barred. So yeah. by the time it gets to you and the in other innocence projects, it's already very, very, very- It's a mess. It's a yeah. mess. Your, your options are limited, yes. Um, but, um, and it doesn't seem that the system is, um, aimed towards actually remedying, you know, wrongs that the justice system has done or no, no, it's not, you know, and, uh, I mean, not to get off too far, but I mean, look at the way the old white men in the Senate treated now Justice Jackson, you know? Mm -hmm. Look at the way old white men treated her in those hearings. They didn't want, they didn't want someone, an outsider coming in and, and uh, you know, um, exercising power in their dominion. That's what I see there with the right. Josh Hawley, the Ted Cruz's way they treated her hearings. And they wanted more judges like the ones that were over this case. Yeah. Well, the law is a problem, but a bigger problem really is the people in power that are administering the law. Yeah, so, so the key to changing things is changing the people who are in power. Right. I believe that's an important key. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Talk about the system and fixing the law. I don't see a... a uh, there are certainly problems with the system. There are problems with the law. But the biggest problem are the people who are administering or the people in power. Yeah, I think we have to become more aware and be careful of our decisions on who we vote in to these positions. We need to actually have a higher standard and hold them to that higher bar. You can't accept people in charge who are going to constantly lie, constantly deceive, constantly take bribes, whatever it is. And people say, oh, well, well we don't worry about what they're doing. Well, you, we need to worry about what they're doing because those are our leaders. And underneath of them are a bunch of other people that are following their lead. And yeah, things need to change. I just, I'm frustrated because I don't know how to change it. You know, what's my part? How do I help? Well, uh, yeah, get involved. Yeah. I mean, of course, 
you know, the federal judiciary, those judges are all appointed for life. So, you know, um, but, um, but, you know, it matters uh, who, it, who you vote for for president because they appoint not just Supreme Court justices, they appoint judges at the federal district level across the country. And, and that's really a, a much more important, I think, responsibility, right. even than a, uh, Supreme Court justices, because 99.99% of the cases never make it to the Supreme Court. They're, they're decided, you know, either at the district court trial level uh, or at, in, in one of the intermediate courts of appeals. Okay. And the good. president appoints, appoints all of those positions. I don't understand why it is so difficult to get an appeal, you know, at the, at the basic level, you know, when someone appeals, if, if you are sure that you have the right person, why do you fight so badly for them to present new evidence or, you know, why is it okay? Why do prosecutors get away with hiding evidence? you know, the, the Brady violations. I don't understand how they get away with that. Well, that's probably the, the topic of, a, of its own. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you know, and, and, you know, this is a case, and I think this is important it, to point out, this is a case, there was no crime in this case. This is a totally fabricated scenario. Uh, I mean, it, it, it. This is not something that just happened organically. This is not someone, you know, an eyewitness getting it wrong mistakenly. You know, this is this is a crime that never happened. You know, just as as witches were burned at Salem for crimes that never happened. You know, there really is. There, there really is no witchcraft. Uh, you know, these crimes were totally fabricated by, you know, these bureaucracies that, you know, make it their business <laughs> to make the lives of, of these Native Americans miserable, you know. Right, right. And, and it's still happening. It's still happening. And it's hard to comprehend well, you know, when I first learned about Desmond's case through the Innocence Project, it's hard to comprehend that this stuff happens in our lifetime, but it it's still happening today. As we speak, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I, I'm, it's, you know, you would think that we had advanced beyond this as a society, and we haven't. Not yet. When you talk about get involved and uh, to what Judy was asking about, uh, also I think about how people like the general public uh, perceive, you know, prosecutors and judges. And there seems to be some idea that these people are flawless or only have good intentions. And it seems mistaken yeah. yeah i mean there's there's been a you know 
50 years of concerted propaganda uh, from everything from, you know, TV shows like Law and Order to, um, you know, the daily crime story in the daily newspaper, which are written by the police department, you know, and handed and handed to the, you know, whoever the crime beat reporter is, you know, in the bar where they drink together or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it's printed as fact. And, it, it, and, and these things, things like that shape, you know, the mythology of what crime is. And it's total, it's BS. And uh, of course, politicians, you know, gain office by fear mongering, you know, and um, um, yeah, and, and, and it's funny you should bring this up because I'm fighting a battle right now. Um, the uh, Texas bar has a committee has proposed some do very simple, straightforward rules for prosecutors in post-conviction innocence matters. And it's just, if they, as prosecutors run across um, evidence that an innocent person has been convicted, they're supposed to disclose that. And, 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 You'd think we were talking. You would think we were talking about taking away their state pensions. You know the way they're screaming like stuck pigs uh, about that. Now the the um, the the rule goes a little further. It says that if it continues to appear this innocent person's been convicted, then they should conduct a reasonable investigation into it or cause to be an investigation. In other words you know, get a, get a lawyer appointed or something. And that if it turns out by clear and convincing evidence, this person is innocent who was convicted, they're there to take steps, reasonable steps to remedy the situation. Well, they have totally united in Texas uh, against that, against these rules. And um, it, it's actually, if you hear their arguments, some of them are, are, are really, really silly. Uh, but part of it is there's all this, put upon whining about how we as prosecutors are always made out to be the bad guys. You know, there's all this popular culture about how we're the bad guys. And it's like, where does this come from? (laughs) They're creating that. They're creating that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's all these silly liberals out there that have created this public perception and uh, they've sort of created this straw man of of uh, that's just very dishonest. I don't know, but it, it was kind of amusing. I mean, after being a criminal defense lawyer for you know almost forty years, and always, you know, what I say as a criminal defense lawyer is not taken seriously in court. You know, I sometimes I feel like I don't even have the right to be right, even when I'm obviously right because I'm not the prosecutor. You know, and 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 to hear them publicly whining about how put up they are. It was really um, uh, darkly funny. Yeah, Yeah. it it is. It is. You know, they are perceived in in the entertainment field and everything is to be like the heroes. They're the ones out for justice. Yeah. But in reality, they're out for the win. They don't care about justice. If they're withholding evidence that... If they're withholding evidence or they have evidence that proves somebody's innocent, then 
to me, they've created, they have, it's criminal on their end of it. Like, that's why we think that they're <laughs> bad people because of this kind of stuff. I mean, you shouldn't go around withholding information. And why is that such a, well, bad, if they you can, know? If they can successfully withhold it, though, nobody will ever know. So, oh, But they, uh, it's, it it's still doesn't make it right. It, it doesn't make it right. No, no, I know. That's why, why, you know, I point out that that even though, you know, the National Registry of Exonerations catalogs, you know, hundreds of exonerations of innocent people. Really, I I think this past year was 160 something. Um, You have to understand that is just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's so many cases that are never identified because, you know, the prosecutors are not disclosing, uh, um, successfully not disclosing. There's so many cases like Desmond's case that, you know, despite everyone's best efforts are unsuccessful. So so you figure if there's, let's say, 160 exonerations in, you know, 2021, that means there probably should have been 10 times that. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's confusing? Well, I mean, having an innocent person actually in jail is horrific to begin with. But on the flip side, that means that if there was a crime committed, then the actual criminal is still out there. So why aren't why aren't the prosecutors more concerned about that? Because they don't care about justice. They don't care about public safety. It's you becoming know, evident. Despite all their rhetoric. Despite all their rhetoric, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, is, it, uh, is it prosecutors and judges? Are they elected some places? Or? At, at the state level in Texas, they are. Different states do it different ways. Now, in the, in the federal judiciary, they're appointed for life. Uh, not the prosecutors. The pros- each federal courts are divided up into districts like Texas has four districts, the Northern, Southern, Eastern, and Western. And um, each district has a presidentially appointed U.S. attorney who's analogous to the district attorney at the state level. That's a political position and changes every time the president does. Um, Now, under this appointed U.S. attorney, there are a bunch of lifers who have been who have been, uh, you know, assistant U.S. attorneys for years or decades, and they're the ones that really run the office. Um, I would say. I mean, every every everyone's different, but the you know, really, they're the ones that really run the office. And the U.S. attorney appointed by the president is largely a, a, that's largely a political stepping stone position. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was wondering why so many prosecutors go on to become judges, but not defense attorneys, because you must know the law, you know, equally. And uh, I would say it sounds like defense attorneys actually have to be better and know the law better and be more diligent to have a chance in court. I think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Because you start way behind. Yeah, it, it seems that way. Wouldn't that make you a better judge then? To, uh, yes. To know the law, <laughs> for example. Yeah. 
You have to know the law. Mm-hmm. It's, that should be a requirement to be a judge. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, and, and, and certainly knowing the law is a great thing. And, 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 uh, but the question is, are they going to apply it? You right. know? Right. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I would take a judge with common sense and, and, and reasonable, logical intelligence and compassion over a judge who was a Harvard legal scholar, you know. Right. Yeah. But did not have the other attributes. Yeah. Yeah, I just had a dealing with a judge that I cannot understand her thought process, but I have to trust in her right now. Um, it's a, a family court matter that I it just, I don't understand her thought process, but what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, I stopped taking family family law cases a long time ago. Thank goodness. I can understand why. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why. You so, know the, the the old the old joke is is and, and I, I'm sorry I don't mean, I'm not certainly not, they're all very serious <laughs> matters and I'm not trying right. to make fun of your situation whatever it is but the old joke is. The family court judge knows he or she's made the right decision when everybody's pissed off. Okay. <laughs> That's how okay. I ruled my house growing up when my kids were little. You could ask Ty. <laughs> if they were pissed off, I knew I was doing a good job. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. Um, well, she's doing a good job because neither one of us were happy with the outcome. Oh, that's true. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand that judges, of course, need a lot of discretion, right? Because they're making the final decision. And, you know, I understand the concept of uh, prosecutorial immunity, but it just seems to not work when people have no pushback and- No accountability. Yes, no accountability. accountability, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Won a case in Bell County, Texas, and it, and it was based on prosecutorial misconduct that we were able to prove, irrefutably prove, and and we did pursue a bar action against these two prosecutors, and it, it was egregious. But it has recently resolved in an agreed public demand. Wow. So, yeah, prosecutors and police officers and judges can break the law and still keep their jobs it's just well as long as as long as the wrong people are not hurt as long as they're only hurting you know people who don't matter you know then they can keep their jobs now you know if they were to um you know um falsely arrest the mayor's son they may not keep their job okay Okay. I, i see that but you know um, I, I just can't wrap my head around how we can think that it's justice when they get away with breaking the law or how they can think it's, it's justice. They just don't care, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please check back next week. And if you'd like to, please give us a rating on the platform you're listening to us from and give us a follow. And feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. 
See you next week.